0: Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 125. After the win against the Chiefs, and before the win against the Chiefs, remember we said on this podcast, that's great and we all enjoyed it, but what is going to determine whether or not this team makes the playoffs is how they handle the final five games of the year. Games where they are going to be favored. Can a young team take care of business against teams they are expected to beat? Well, on Monday against the Giants... Sunday against the Buccaneers, courtesy of Joe Barry. They are 0-2 in that five-game stretch after what has to be a rock bottom defensive performance, doesn't it? Or are we gonna watch that on Christmas Eve at the hands of Bryce Young and the hapless Panthers? We may, we may. I know people want changes to be made and for Joe Barry to be fired, but if it doesn't happen in the next five hours, I don't see it happening, everybody. We'll break it all down. The Buccaneers, Baker Mayfield, throttle the Packers in front of the home crowd at Lambeau on Sunday. We'll talk a little bit about the Bucs, too. Winning weekend for them did not fall into the trap game against the Pistons put up 146 in that game, and then took care of the next night of a pretty good up-and-coming Rockets team. Giannis set a new record, and the game ball was secured. We'll break all of that down, too. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's Yes! The Boards yes. yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin! Smash up the middle, face it to center. Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, on the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's intercepted. Intercepted. and there is your Super Bowl dagger! Booker, the drive, gets inside, leans in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday! Phoenix has the foul, and a ball foul, throws it down! Swinging, fly ball center roxton is there and they're the champions they have done it it's been a 50 year journey wisconsin we've got a room at the top of the world tonight the milwaukee bucks are nba champions i saw this posted on packer twitter it had to be late last night where In this scene of The Office, they had Joe Barry's name under Michael Scott, and then it was Packer fans under Stanley. I forget what episode of The Office this is. I've seen every episode of The Office a million times, although the first four seasons, we can all agree, of The Office are elite-tier comedy television And the last, what, seasons five through nine, a little more hit and miss. I think this might be in that five to nine season range. But this is Packer fans are Stanley, and Joe Barry is Michael Scott getting yelled at by Packer. Do you have anything to say to me? Oh, yes, I do. You are out of your damn little pea-sized mind. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Do you have any sense at all? Okay. Do you have any idea how to run an office? Every day you do something stupider than you did the day before. And I think there's no possible way he can top that. But what do you do? You find a way, it, to top it. You are a professional idiot. Hey, stop it! (laughs) That's about how Packer fans are feeling this morning about the display the defense put together yesterday. I haven't seen anything like that in a long, long time. And we've had some bad defenses in Green Bay. Maybe some of that is washed out by the fact that we had an offense that could score 35 or 40, and there were a lot of games like that, but they were a little more entertaining because it was back and forth. You can't expect this Packer offense. And we can talk a little bit about the Packer offense. And Jordan Love, who had 111 quarterback rating, a two-touchdown no-pick day and some more glimpses of what you like to see out of Tucker Craft and Dontavian Wicks and the young wide receiver tight end room. They continue to grow. We can discuss a bit of that toward the second half of the podcast. This was not on them by any stretch. But, you know, with Aaron Rodgers at his peak strength, this was an offense that could score and keep up with really bad Packer defenses where they could put 40 on the board. This offense is not there yet, nor could you expect them to be or should you expect them to be. Maybe there were some performances in there similar to yesterday where I just don't remember them because the Packers found a way to win 41-38 to or 41-37 to or whatever it would end up being. That was about as bad as I think I have ever seen a defense perform against anybody. The tone was set early, although it was a little bend, don't break early. The Buccaneers went right down the field. The Packers, though, were able to hold them to a field goal. You just got the sense, though, with the way that first drive for Tampa materialized that they were going to be able to get pretty much whatever they wanted. What's interesting is – well, not interesting. That's the right word, right? (laughs) What's interesting is they did it primarily through the air. The pass defense has not been good, but it's at least been slightly better than the run defense. You know, most days on this podcast, after a game, we're talking about how the rush defense, like after the Giants game, they gave up 210 yards, seven yards a carry on 30 carries or whatever it ended up being. Tampa identified pretty early that they were going to be able to get whatever they wanted through the air, and they did. It was. It looked like they were on rookie mode in Madden. That's what it looked like. You ever play that in the old Madden games or the current Madden games? You set it on rookie mode, and you throw for seven touchdowns and beat a team over the head, 70 to nothing or whatever it is. That's what it looked like for Tampa. That should be Joe Barry's nickname, Joe Rookie Mode Barry. If anybody sees Joe Barry out at a festival foods in Green Bay, I want him to say, hey, Rookie. Hey, Rookie. That's his new nickname, Joe Rookie Mode Barry. Baker Mayfield, I mean, do you really want to go over the stats? They made Baker Mayfield look like he was 2007 or 2008 Tom Brady. He looked unstoppable. 22 of 28, 381 yards. Four touchdowns, no picks. The only mistake he made and the only good defensive play made by the Packers yesterday was the Kingsley Enigbare where he was able to strip sack and get the ball back immediately and the Packers turned that into a touchdown that gave them the brief 7-3 lead. That was the only mistake Baker made on the entire day and that really wasn't his fault. He puts up a quarterback rating of 158.3, which is the perfect quarterback rating. What's new high score mean? Oh my God. A new high score! What does high score mean? New high score, is that bad? What does that mean? Does that break? He broke it. He broke the game. I uh, Baker Mayfield, 158.3 passer rating. Remember on Tuesday's podcast... Coming out of the game against Tommy DeVito, where Tommy DeVito was or became the NFC Offensive Player of the Year. We must have been Offensive Player of the Week. We must have talked about that on Friday's podcast heading into the weekend, how Tommy DeVito got named the NFC Offensive Player of the Week. And the fact that that happened, what do we call it, Joe Barry's opus? Oh, John. Oh, Friday, Jonathan. You didn't know what was coming. You thought that was going to be rock bottom? You thought Tommy DeVito being the NFC Offensive Player of the Week was going to be rock bottom? Baker Mayfield, he had the NFC, he's gonna be the NFC Offensive Player of the Week this week, right? He had that cinched up by the end of the third quarter. He didn't even have to play in the fourth quarter to guarantee that. So Joe Barry's defense is gonna give up back-to-back NFC Offensive Player of the Week awards to Tommy DeVito and Baker Mayfield. Now Baker Mayfield's a much better quarterback than Tommy DeVito, don't get me wrong. By the way, Tommy DeVito yesterday. When the Giants played a real defense in New Orleans, what did he do? Nothing. Pedestrian. They lost 24-6. That's what a defense should do to Tommy DeVito, not make him the NFC Offensive Player of the Week. Baker is certainly a more accomplished and much better quarterback than Tommy DeVito will ever be in his life. That said, Baker, for the most part in his career, has been a middle-of-the-road quarterback. For a middle-of-the-road quarterback to put up a QB rating of 158.3, Friday, John, you big, dumb idiot. You thought that was going to be rock bottom. And Baker, like we talked about on Friday's podcast, too, he came into Lambeau the last few years, hasn't done much of anything, threw four picks for Cleveland on Christmas Day in 2021. I guess that was a Joe Barry defense. This was Baker-Matefield's revenge game, four picks in that game for Cleveland. He threw for 112 yards and a turnover for the Rams last year in December at Lambeau Field, and this was the revenge tour. This was the Baker-Matefield revenge tour. He is no doubt going to be the offensive player of the week in the NFC, maybe in the entire NFL. I don't even know if they have that, where you have an NFC and an AFC and then an NFL player of the week, offensive player of the week. He would get any and all of those based on the numbers he put up. This is one of those games where the defense was so bad. I looked at the stats for Tampa, and they looked low to me. Chris Godwin had 10 catches for 155 yards, didn't score. I thought he would have 14 or 15 catches and over 200 yards. That was actually low based on the way that we saw things play out on Sunday. David Moore, who hadn't scored a touchdown in three years, scored one, two catches, 68 yards, and a touchdown. Mike Evans was solid, four for 57, and a touchdown. They just couldn't get a stop at any point. And it didn't even matter what the down and distance was. It could have been any down and distance. We saw, what did we all see yesterday? We saw second and 19s they were able to turn into first downs. We saw a third and 29 or a second and 29, right, where they give up 25 yards and the Buccaneers get right back into field goal range. There was never a down and distance yesterday where I felt comfortable saying, we're going to get a stop here. It could have been third and 30 or fourth and uh, – I'm not going to say it, but you know. <laughs> I'm not saying it, but you know. It could have been fourth and 22. And I would have had no confidence that the Packer defense was going to be able to get the stop. Any down and distance, any deep down and distance, the Buccaneers were able to get a big chunk of it back on one play and then get a first down the next play. They just put up zero resistance, and there was total confusion secondary. The play, which of the many touchdowns was it? Let me click on the game cast here. There's a replay of it where I could even see live during the broadcast, Packers safety Rudy Ford was screaming to the sideline that he had no idea what the play call was. Sure enough, that play ends in a touchdown. What one was that? Was that the last touchdown? It might have been the David Moore. No, it wasn't. It was... Might have been the Rashad White touchdown early third quarter where Rudy Ford was signaling to the sideline that he had no idea what the call was. And as he's doing that, (laughs) the play is starting. Sure enough, right down that seam, easy touchdown. There was so many times where nobody was even in the vicinity of a Buccaneer wide receiver. Forget about challenging it. Nobody was even around some of those Buccaneer wide receivers for two or three yards on either side. You had Devondre Campbell in coverage on Chris Godwin. We saw Preston Smith earlier this year in coverage on Devontae Adams in that Raiders game. He was in coverage on Chris Godwin. How are these things happening? And I know Packer Twitter was getting into a little bit of the – Is it all Joe Barry or is it the personnel too? Yeah, it's probably a little bit on the personnel. But when I'm seeing Preston Smith lined up against a wide receiver consistently or Devondre Campbell lined up against a wide receiver consistently in passing downs, that is scheme, guys. That is. There's no doubt that that is scheme. That is totally on Joe Barry when you end up in those situations. Yes, maybe there are shortcomings in terms of talent. Maybe there are shortcomings in terms of players understanding whatever scheme they're supposed to be in missing assignments, no gap discipline, whatever. I'm sure the players are making mistakes too, and there are probably plays that were called that could have been more successful if the players were maybe a little bit better or understood it a little bit more. But more often than not, you just see these wide receivers in space, and they've got defensive linemen or linebackers covering them. That is a scheme issue, and to have that happen all day long. The other thing that was infuriating on the long list, I've got a Martin Luther-esque list here. (laughs) of things that were infuriating. They never brought pressure. I I understand that you're worried about your young secondary, and if you bring pressure and it doesn't get there, you're going to put them in a bad spot. But they were in bad spots anyway when you were just rushing four. If the Packer defensive front could not get home for a sack, and they did have five sacks yesterday, the front four, the front five. They did have five sacks. If they did not get home for a sack, it was basically a guaranteed completion. You've got to put pressure on them, though. Look late in the game at what Todd Bowles did to Jordan Love when it was a 14-point game and he knew the Packers were in passing situations. The Bucks pinned their ears back and they brought five or six and they made sure that Jordan Love did not have time to get a pass away. That's how that late fumble happened on fourth and ten where they just brought the house. They brought six or seven guys. At no point... Did the Packers ever bring an extra blitz, some kind of engage eight blitz package? Nothing. They rushed for every time, which is why they were able to pick apart that secondary. The secondary was giving up catches anyway. You may as well blitz. You may as well blitz and just see if that works. Just give it a shot. At no point did they bring any kind of pressure on Baker Mayfield, In those long down and distance situations, I just I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Packer defenders at the end of the game said that they were schemed up that they saw some things during the game on Sunday that they weren't ready for or that they didn't see on tape going into it. It's just a colossal failure for a unit that has been pretty bad all year. Look, if you want to go back to the three-game winning streak and say they played okay against Detroit and they played okay against Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes had a quarterback rating of whatever it was, 80 or 81 in that game on Sunday night a few weeks ago, which feels like 10 years ago at this point. Okay, but now it's on a downward slide. The numbers are bad. The players look confused. There's nothing really to take from that game on Sunday and feel good about it going forward. The question now is... Will Matt LaFleur make a call? Will he make the call and fire Joe Barry? For the most part, whenever the Packer defense has had a bad game in the Joe Barry era, and there have been a lot of them, Matt LaFleur has been able to make excuses for him or just chooses to make excuses for him in the postgame presser or has some other thing that has to get looked at before we look at the defense. He's like, you know what it is? Joe Barry's like that guy in your crew or that friend in your group of friends when you go out and just goes too hard and makes so many dumb mistakes that night and then you just continue to make excuses for them like, yeah, Joe Barry, well, he pissed his pants again, but whatever. I mean, the bartender shouldn't have given him that last Bud Light. You know what I mean? He's like that. He's that He's that kind of friend. Yeah, he slept outside again. <laughs> should've, somebody should have helped him in there, slept in his shoes. It's He's that guy. He's the guy when you go out, he's the guy that goes too hard and gets everybody annoyed, but still he's been your friend for so long and you make excuses for him. That's what Matt LaFleur has done for Joe Barry. He was a little more evasive in the post-game press conference yesterday. He did lead it by saying, and that was the first question, is what do you do now with this defensive unit? And would you consider a change in the defensive coaching staff? He said it's not the time to look at that now, But then he did go on to say, certainly we need to examine the defensive failures and they got whatever they wanted. And he had something to say to the effect of this is not a one-time deal at this point. This is a trend. This is happening week in, week out. It was as, I guess, engaged to maybe a change that we've heard in Matt LaFleur's tone and the way that he talked about it. He didn't say no, I guess, is at the end of the day. He didn't say no. He has said no a lot when he's been asked that question. He did not say no in the aftermath of Sunday. I have a Twitter alert set up right now. I'm keeping an eye on it because if they do make a move in the next 20 or 30 or 40 minutes, this podcast is going to be irrelevant. Not so much examining what happened that went poorly yesterday, but if he does get fired, we want to talk about it here. I have, for that reason, alerts set up on my phone right now in case something happens when we're in the middle of this podcast. And it has to happen soon, I would think. We talked about this on the air on the B93 Morning Show. There are three weeks left in the year, which leads me to believe he's probably not. Is he mad? Is he angry? Is a change likely to come in the offseason? I do think we're at that point now where it is likely they will make a switch in the offseason. With three weeks left, I don't know. I guess I don't know what you stand to gain other than making a statement that this is unacceptable, which maybe that's the reason you do it. Maybe that is reason enough to make a move here. Three weeks left in the year, you're not going to bring in a new coordinator with a totally different scheme. You can't install that at this point in the year. So if you do fire him, you're going to end up promoting somebody on his staff. And then the question becomes, how different is this defense really going to look? If you're promoting somebody that is working under Joe Barry right now, maybe their philosophy is a little bit different, or maybe they would tweak it a little bit in ways that Joe Barry hasn't. But how different is this really going to look if you fire Joe Barry today and promote, I don't even know, Jerry Montgomery or the cornerback's coach or somebody like that, is it really going to look a whole lot different in the final three weeks than it would with Joe Barry? My guess is ultimately Matt LaFleur lands on we've got three weeks left in the year. We'll see if we can get this going back in the right direction, and even if we do, we are likely to make a change in the offseason. It just feels very unlikely to me at the stage of the year that we're in, that he's going to make that big of a call. And I don't even really know how much it helps other than to say to the fans and podcasters and bloggers and everybody buying tickets and merch, other than to say to that group of people what we saw on Sunday and what we've seen in the last couple of years is unacceptable. I just don't know what that really changes for the prognosis for the remainder of the year. I don't know who you'd bring in that would be both a breath of fresh air and could tweak the system so much that it would look different in the final three weeks. My guess is they end up hanging on to him. And if you make it through noon today, if Joe Barry makes it through 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock this afternoon, if the Bobs are not at 1265, if they're not there by early afternoon making a move, at that point you're already pretty much on to game planning for Carolina and you're not going to fire a guy midweek. If it's going to happen, it's happening in the next few hours. I just don't feel that it's likely given what we've seen from Matt LaFleur, given that loyalty, he's loyal to a fault. We saw this in 2021 with Mo Drayton, remember that? And the special teams in 2021 were not a whole lot better this year either with Rich Passaccia, but I guess they aren't as bad as 2021. And all year long, in 2021, we all said, the special team's going to cost you. The special team's going to cost you. you got to make a move. You've got to make a change. And all year long, Matt LaFleur stuck with him because that's his guy, and he has faith in his guys. And what happened in the playoffs that year? The special teams single-handedly basically lost them a divisional round playoff game to the 49ers. And we all saw it. We saw it all year. That's all we could talk about all year. It's the same thing right now with the Joe Barry defense. I just, given his history and the way LaFleur has operated and where we are at in the year – it feels unlikely that they're going to make a move today. And once you get past today, you're on to Carolina and putting in the defensive scheme for Carolina. I can't wait for Bryce Young to have a record day on Christmas Eve. I'm very excited for that (laughs) this coming weekend. The Panther offense, of all of the offenses in the NFL, Their offensive line is an abject disaster. It's a sieve. They have almost no playmakers in terms of running backs or wide receivers. Adam Thielen, who is now, what, 33 or 34 years old, he's their number one wide receiver. And they've got a shell-shocked rookie quarterback, the number one overall pick in last year's draft, Bryce Young. He gets no protection. He's been sacked a million times. They did win their game on Sunday, which actually kind of helps the Packers. They beat the Falcons in rainy conditions in Carolina where there were about, looks like 2,000 people at that game. Honestly, if you go and look at the Carolina game yesterday, look at the crowd with how bad the weather was and how the Panthers were 1-12 and going into yesterday and the Falcons in town, not an exciting team. I would say there were two to 3,000 people in an 80,000-seat stadium for that Panther game this past Sunday. We'll see if there's any more on Christmas Eve. I find that unlikely, although Packer fans will travel. I'm sure you could find tickets for this game in Carolina if you really wanted to travel with this team. You could probably get tickets on StubHub. I'm going to look at it right now. I bet that you can get tickets on StubHub for this Panther-Packer game for a sawbuck. My wife and I once went to Cleveland, and I did it on principle the year Rodgers was hurt. In 2017, one of the two years he was hurt, and Brett Hundley was making all those starts, but they were kind of hanging in the playoff picture. Remember, they played at Cleveland in December. Carolina Panthers. Even StubHub is thinking you you want to go where? Why? What? But they played in Denver in December of that year, and I went on StubHub because it's drivable. That's I don't even remember what it was—six hours, six and a half hours from Milwaukee, from Sheboygan to Carol or to Cleveland. I thought we could make a long weekend out of that. Tickets on StubHub for that game were $2. And on principle, I could not let the opportunity to go to a Packer game, even though it was Brett Hundley versus Deshaun Kaiser, I'm pretty sure, at the time for Cleveland. I could not let the opportunity to go to a Packer game for $2 slip through my fingers. Packers at Panthers. It's a fast-selling event. Oh, I think they are cashing in a little bit here on Packer fans buying these up. You can get them for... $34 right now if you wanted to go check out that Panther game. But you can already feel it. Just based on how rock bottom this defense is right now, they can't have any confidence. I can already see the Bryce Young career game coming on Christmas Eve where he throws for three touchdowns and no picks and 250 yards, and Adam Thielen has a throwback day, and you lose the game 24-17, something like that. If the Joe Barry news does not come soon, though, It's likely that he is going to be the team's coordinator for Sunday. And at that point, he'll be there for the rest of the year. What they decide to do in the offseason, I have no idea. There are a ton of names out there already being thrown about on Packer Twitter. I'd take just about any one of them just for the change. Jim Leonard, who Matt LaFleur wanted before they hired Joe Barry. You go back to that hire, too. I was texting my buddies. When we looked at Joe Barry's resume after they hired him and saw all of his defenses, the defense that he coached for the Lions that didn't win a game in 2008, all of these defenses that he was in charge of that finished in 28th spot or 30th spot or 31st spot. Remember when they brought in Joe Barry after Leonard turned down the floor and we looked at all those numbers and thought, "Boy, this is a weird hire, but maybe they know something we don't." They're the football people, we are just the fans. Maybe Joe Barry didn't have talent on those teams, and there was something that he can change with the talent in Green Bay and all the first-round picks and the money they're going to spend on that side of the football. Maybe they know something we don't, and three years later, nope, he's just bad. bad. He's just a bad defensive coordinator. I remember just scratching my head when they hired him, and we saw that his track record as a defensive coordinator in the NFL is not good. Because Jim Leonard was the initial thought and Matt LaFleur apparently wanted him, he was the number one guy, and Leonard said, no, no, thank you. And remember at that time, we all thought that that was probably because Leonard thought he was ultimately going to get the job in Wisconsin. At that time, Paul Chris was still the head coach, but it seemed like Jim Leonard was the heir apparent. He was the coach in waiting on that team. So when he turned down the Packer job, Maybe that was Jim Leonard's thinking then that, all right, at some point, Paul Chris is probably going to step away in the next three to five years, and I'll just take over my hometown college football program. That's where he wanted to be anyway. Perhaps because that dynamic has changed, and he didn't get the job after having the interim job, and now he's, what, a special assistant to the regional manager for Bielema at Illinois. Perhaps now that things have changed in his life, he would reexamine that if he were offered a defensive coordinator job in Green Bay, and maybe he would take it. That's a name I've seen thrown out there. Al Harris is an interesting one that I've seen throw out there, thrown out there. The former Packer cornerback, he is an assistant defensive coach now for the Cowboys. Even though the Cowboys got shredded in Buffalo, we'll talk about that a little bit when we make our run through the NFL. He's a guy who seems to be an up-and-coming name on the defensive side for a lot of NFL teams as a potential coordinator or getting a promotion at least with a different team. Cowboys going into Sunday had the third best defense. In the NFL, that will change, obviously, given the result of that game in Buffalo. Al Harrison, though, I've seen that have has been thrown around among Packer fans and Packer beat reporters and podcasters saying, well, maybe that's a guy you could look at and bring a familiar face back, a coach on the rise. Just an unmitigated disaster for Joe Barry and the defense yesterday. I'll be surprised at those Panther tickets, $35. <laughs> that's a little bit pricey, a little too rich for my blood, given yeah. what that matchup's going to look like. Other things from the game, not defense-related. Jordan Love, like we talked about, pretty solid. He missed some throws early on that fourth down. He missed a pretty much wide open. Jaden Reed did not set his feet. The ball sailed on him there. Luckily for him... It was the subsequent Buccaneer drive where Enigbari was able to strip Baker Mayfield. They got the ball right back, and he had the touchdown pass to Tucker Craft. He missed a few, but overall, 29 of 39, 284 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. He did have the fumble late. I'm not going to put a lot of that on him. His quarterback rating was 111.5, and the season bet on total passing yards already cashed, and it only took 14 games. Remember, I have the over-under on season passing yards for Love. It was at 3,350, and coming out of yesterday, he has 3,364, unless he throws for negative 15 yards over the course of the next four weeks. That ticket has cashed. He was solid enough. He now has 25 touchdowns, 11 picks on the year. He continues to look like the guy. We saw the return of Aaron Jones. He was on a pitch count. They said that heading into the game. What was odd was the way they chose to use him, he had 13 carries. Nine of those all came on the first drive, and he was tearing it up. He had the one run where he got stuff that set up that fourth down and goal on that drive where he got shut down on an inside run on third down and goal where they were at the two-yard line or whatever it was, three-yard line. They gave him all those carries early, and I thought, oh, he's going to be way over whatever they were saying, 15 touches. And then they basically didn't run him for the rest of the game. It was just bizarre to me the way they chose to use those 15 to 20 touches. 13 carries, 53 yards, 4.1 yards a carry. No A.J. Dillon. They couldn't give him the Reggie White arm bat. We saw Kenyon Drake for one carry. He almost fumbled it. Didn't see him again for the rest of the day. The receiving core continues to grow. Dontavian Wicks looks spectacular. Six catches, 97 yards. They've got one in Dontavian Wicks. His ability to keep a pile moving to get those yak yards... And I, I did see somebody on Twitter in reference to Tucker Craft, who we'll talk about in a second, that called him because he got so many yak yards, yards after catch, mom, yak, Y-A-C, yards after catch, that they nicknamed Tucker Craft Craft yak, and cheese. <laughs> that was pretty good. But Wicks gets those too. He kind of moves like Devontae. I saw Matt LaFleur used a comparison between Devontae and Dontavian during practice last week. And he qualified it by saying, now look, let's not go crazy. I'm not saying Dontavian Wicks is going to be the next Devontae Adams. He was just saying his footwork at the line of scrimmage reminds him of Devontae Adams. I would say Wicks' ability to get those extra yards after the catch. I forget what catch it was. I think it was in the fourth quarter where he caught it on the near sideline, and then he turned it upfield. He ran over a guy, moved inside of a guy, carried a guy on his back. That reminded me very much of Devontae Adams getting yards after the catch. Dontavian Wicks now is just short of 500 yards receiving on the year. Tucker Craft continues to grow, 4 for 57 yards and one touchdown. Jaden Reed, 6 for 52 and a touchdown. That touchdown reception, that was an elite throw by Jordan Love and an elite catch by Jaden Reed in the corner of the end zone. You could argue that maybe Jordan Love's best throw of the year, and he's had some really good throws. To get that to him where he could catch it and just tippy-toe both of his feet and get the touchdown, tremendous concentration by Jaden Reed in that moment, and maybe Jordan Love's best throw. Romeo Dobbs, a quieter game, 3 for 30. Malik Heath, 3 for 29. We just continue to be encouraged by the young wide receiver, young tight end room. Didn't have Christian Watson back. We did see Reed and Wicks both leave, but both came back. This room, in the next two years, is going to be one of the best wide-receiving tight end rooms in the league. When you see Wicks and Reed and Watson and Dobbs and Kraft and Musgrave at tight end whenever you get him back, and even undrafted guys like Malik Heath continue to grow. Bo Melton even had a catch on Sunday. I guess they were a healthy and active with Samari Touré. They were not impressed by his efforts at the end of the game in New York, so they had Bo Melton active. All of those six or seven guys, as they continue to develop and get better and get more comfortable, they already all look good. And some of them look like they're on their way to maybe Pro Bowl status or somewhere in that realm, like a Jaden Reed. Seems to be like he's on that track. That room, as it continues to level up and get better and more comfortable and the game slows down for them, they're already growing leaps and bounds. I can't imagine how good they're going to be in 2024, 2025. If all else fails this year... And the playoff chances are taking on water now, thanks to the Joe Barry defense. I don't know if there's enough flex seal in the world to cover up the bottom of that boat. There's still a chance. We'll see. They'd have to win their final three. But coming out of this year, whatever the record ends up being, if you get to eight wins or seven wins or you win out and you get to nine and eight, or maybe you don't win a game for the rest of the year, there are plenty of Packer fans that want that now at this point, that playoff chances have gone back down. Now they want them to lose out again and get the higher draft pick and all that kind of stuff. We are going to feel great heading into the offseason about our young quarterback and our young wide receiving and tight end room. They've been a joy to watch. Otherwise, Anders Carlson hit a couple of field goals. He was two for two. Some decent punting from Danny Whalen. The Buccaneers only punted once. What a punt, though. Do you remember that? I don't even remember what quarter it was. Was it early second quarter? And he had a 65-yarder that landed inside the five-yard line. That was some top-tier punting. That's a Pat McAfee special right there. I'm sure they'll be talking about that on the McAfee show today. It all ends up in a 34 to 20 loss, embarrassing for the Packers to lose and lose in that fashion. And now, like we said off the top, in this five game stretch of games, where we said that's going to determine if they can go four and one or five and zero, or maybe I think I think I even said three and two, which I suppose mathematically there's still a chance they could do that if they went out. That might be enough to get them in, but how they fare now in the games where they are expected to win, that's going to determine whether or not a young team makes the playoffs, and so far, not so good. 0-2 in the span of six days in New York on Monday Night Football and then at home against the Buccaneers Sunday afternoon. Now you do head to Carolina. You would hope you can get a win against a two-win Panther team. The Panthers, I guess they don't... They have nothing to lose. They're going to lose their draft pick anyway, so it's not like they're fighting for the number one overall pick. Whatever pick they get, they have to hand off to the Chicago Bears, so it doesn't matter to them whether they lose. If this were just the Panthers pick and they were, uh, they were invested in losing so they could get the number one overall pick, maybe that would factor into this game, but because they're giving that up to Chicago, they don't care. They want to win. They want to see their team develop and get wins and try to build the same way the Packers are. In Carolina on Christmas Eve, a noon kickoff. Packers open as four-point favorites, which isn't much considering Carolina's 2-12. Maybe that speaks to what the wise guys think of where the Packers are right now and the way the defense looks. And then they're in Minnesota on New Year's Eve. That might get flexed. That's something they would have to do today, I'm pretty sure. Right now they are scheduled for the 7-20 primetime matchup on New Year's Eve. There's a chance that gets flexed out with how the Packers look and how the Vikings look, too. Maybe that gets moved back to a 3 o'clock or a noon on Sunday. I believe the deadline for that is today. They would have to do that today. And then you end the year on Sunday, January 7th against the Bears. We'll talk about them in a second, too, when we run through the NFL. What a weird ending in Cleveland. If you win all three, I saw Rob Domofsky had some stat where if they go 3-0 in those games, they would have a 92 or 93% chance to make the playoffs you just gotta win a game. That's the, we're at the Jim Moore part now. I just for playoffs. I just want to win a game. We'll put that in here. I'm gonna give myself a space. Space playoffs. Don't talk about it. playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs. I just hope we can win a game. Now I know where to look when we're editing this thing down. That last part of that, which I think is almost the funnier part, that's where we're at right now. Playoffs. We just want to win a game. Get a win against Carolina. You are going to get help on Thursday regardless of the outcome. You've got the 7-7 seven and seven Saints and the 7-7 seven seven Rams, both of whom you have a tiebreaker with where you have the advantage. So somebody's going to lose that game, presumably, and that will help you move up a bit in the standings. Whatever happens on Thursday should help get a win against Carolina, you get to 7-8, kind of see where the rest of the league shakes down after this weekend, and maybe you do still have a 50-50 chance of two games left. But you've got to win a game, and you've got to see the defense improve quite a bit for that matchup against Carolina on Sunday. Let's run through the NFL. We'll talk about that Browns-Bears game. Bears look like they had a nice road win. They were up 17-7 late the Browns rally, the Bear defense disintegrated at the end. Browns get up 20-17, to 17, but then at the end, did you see the Hail Mary? Justin Fields had a Hail Mary from midfield to try and win it. The pass was deflected, or the Browns were attempting to bat it down. It ends up right in Darnell Mooney's lap. I mean, in his lap. He can't secure it. It bounces off of his chest and ends up getting intercepted. I I had one of those at the end of it. I thought, oh, my God, they're going to get it. I mean, it landed right on Mooney, like one of those remember those Velcro games back in the 90s with the tennis ball. I mean, it went right to him like a magnet, and he just could not get his arms around it. And the Bears end up losing 20-17. to That was a push for us gambling-wise. We went 2-0-2. We had two wins and two pushes. That was a push. We had the Browns minus three. They won by three. We also hit our Saturday parlay, everybody. I'm counting it. I'm counting that for a win. I know I said it was unofficial. The fact that we hit it, I'm counting it. All of the home teams on Saturday won, and we had that three-team money parlay, money line parlay for plus 270. So I'm calling it 3-0-2 for this weekend. So we're up three more units on top of what were we up, 14 units or 13 units? That was a tight game. Texans got a win in Tennessee. Case Keenum still around. Third string quarterback. Got to start 19-17 to 17, or 19-16. to 16, That went to overtime. I feel like the Texans should get their Oilers jerseys back for winning that game. The Titans, for those that don't remember the history, the Tennessee Titans came from Houston. The Houston Oilers became the Tennessee Titans. And the Titans were wearing Houston Oiler throwbacks, which are 10 out of 10, 11 out of 10 jerseys. They were wearing those against the Houston Texans on Sunday, and then the Texans go in there and come back and win. I think the Texans should get the Oiler name back and the jersey back with that win. The Dolphins blow out the Jets 30 nothing. At some point this week, we're going to get the Aaron Rodgers. Well, I was going to come back, but now that we're not in playoff range, he was acting so frustrated on the sideline yesterday. You could tell, though, in his heart of hearts, in places he doesn't like to talk about at parties. He was hoping they lose because if they would have won that game and there was no Tyree Kill for Miami, the spread got down to seven points before kickoff in that game and the weather was terrible. If the Jets would have won that game, they would have been pretty firmly in the conversation and then Rodgers would have had to back up his word and probably play this coming weekend against Washington, a very winnable game. Even without him, it's a winnable game. It's certainly winnable with him. He, you, I think he probably was breathing a sigh of relief that they got smoked 30 to nothing on Sunday, and now he doesn't have to worry about it. That'll happen at some point today or tomorrow, maybe on the McAfee show. It's a Tuesdays he's on McAfee. He'll be on there on Tuesday and say, well, I was going to come back, but at 5-9, and nine, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Chiefs got a win in New England, 27-17. They still don't look right. I did have to laugh. Taylor Swift was at that game in New England, and Travis Kelsey had a pass intended for him in the back of the end zone where he got run over by a Patriot defender. And no flag was thrown. And they cut to the luxury box where Taylor was sitting and She's just standing up and saying, what the bleep? I thought, okay, you're starting to win me over a little bit. You can tell she's invested in these games now. She had some court a week or two ago where she was talking about how she never really watched football. And now she feels like she's missed out her entire life because she's having so much fun doing it. That visceral, what the bleep reaction to a no-call on pass interference. One of us. One of us. The Saints gonna win. I've got that Saints future on the NFC South championship. The Packers could have helped me a lot there. The Saints held Tommy DeVito in check. They win twenty-four to six. They are seven and seven. They are tied with Tampa and who else? Is that it now? Because the Falcons lost. I've got the Saints and, and Bucks then tied at seven and seven atop the NFC South. That future bet is still alive. Panthers do get that sloppy win against Atlanta, nine to seven. How did the Packers lose to Atlanta? Rams continue their surge. They look for real. They've got themselves healthy. Matthew Stafford fully healthy, still has some juice left in the tank, it looks like, as does Cooper Cup. They hang on against Washington 28-20. They are 7-7. If I were objective and I look at the bottom of the NFC, I would say the Rams are probably going to take the Packers spot. I could use a Saints win over the Rams on Thursday for a variety of reasons to knock the Rams back down on the Packers level and to help my NFC South bet. But the Rams get to 500 with that win against Washington. Niners blow out the Cardinals, 45-29, in a two-point spread of a game. Bills dominate the Cowboys all week long. Dak Prescott was being talked about as the front runner for MVP. That's probably not happening anymore. 31-10 win for the Bills over the Cowboys. I have not seen odds yet. Let me see if I can get on my book here quick. Two weeks ago, when the Bills were sitting at six and six. They were plus 480 to make the playoffs. If you put a future bet on them when they were 6-6 six and six to make the playoffs, it would have paid almost 5-1. to one. And I thought about it because that team has talent and they had underachieved and made so many mistakes during the course of the year that you thought, if they can just get healthy and get it together, they still have a loaded team. Yeah, there's nothing up yet. There probably won't be until Tuesday. I wonder where that's going to be at now. They are not in the playoffs currently if the season ended today, but I would guess those plus 480 odds are likely down to plus 150 or plus 140. I may still do it. And the Ravens got to win in Jacksonville 23-7. They are right now the number one seed in the AFC. Your NFL roundup from Sunday. We've got one more tonight. Eagles in Seattle. I guess we could. We were kind of rooting for the Eagles there. We'd like to see the Seahawks lose if you still care about a Packer playoff spot. And then this coming weekend, we've got a game on Thursday. We've got two on Saturday on the 23rd. And then a pretty loaded slate for Christmas Eve. And three Christmas Day games as well on Monday, December 25th. We'll be talking about all of that on Friday's podcast or probably Thursday's podcast. Let's hit on the Bucs real quick before we get out. A nice weekend. I was worried because of how many games the Pistons had lost in a row and how a veteran Bucks team sometimes in those matchups tends to Cadillac a little bit too much. Remember, they barely beat the Pistons earlier this year. They only won by two points at home back in November. I was a tad worried, and then in a blink it was 50-20. to 20. On Saturday night, and they blow their doors off, 146 to 114. You see Giannis at the end of that game, he was sitting in the crowd basically with his kids. He had his two sons at the game, and they were sitting adjacent to the bench next to a nice couple. And then Giannis went and just sat with them and was shooting the breeze with the couple sitting there for a couple of minutes at the end of that game. And then his kids were on the bench with him. That's how dominant the Bucks were on Saturday. I got to tell you, that Pistons team, they have two wins. They are getting blown up by everybody. They may only win 10 games this year, and I don't even know how they get to that, honestly. Given the talent, given the scheme, given how the players look like they don't care already because they're 2-24, and they may – what's the record for futility? I think the lowest win total in NBA history is nine in a season, in an 82-game season. They may threaten that. They look objectively horrible, a horrible basketball team. Bucks got the win there. Lillard had 33. Not much else to talk about from Saturday. Then Sunday, the Rockets, who are a young, talented team, that coming into Sunday had a record of 13-9. and Ime Udoka, who was the coach for the Celtics before being unceremoniously released from his contract, he took that job in the offseason. He's got that team focused. He's got them playing cohesively. That's a good team. They spent some money. So they come into Fiserv Forum on the second game of a back-to-back for the Bucks, and the Bucs get a win there too, 128-119. to 119. Lillard again, fantastic. This offense is starting to hum, everybody. It took a little bit. We thought it would. If you go back into the archives, I think I thought this is going to take probably a few months before it looks like what we expect it to look like. Well, we're getting there now. Giannis and Lillard are working well in unison. Middleton seems to be the glue guy where – he doesn't care about stats much anymore. I think he's only averaging 13 points a game. He had 20 last night and a great fourth quarter. 12 of his 20 in the fourth quarter. Classic Middleton. When I watch these games, though, Middleton seems to be the middle man. He seems to be the glue guy that whenever there's a breakdown defensively or offensively, He's the guy talking to Giannis and talking to Dame and getting them on the same page. Not that Dame and Giannis don't communicate. It just seems like Middleton is the guy who's unifying this whole group now and getting them together. They appear to have galvanized a bit because of this Pacer rivalry and the way Wednesday's game went. And they get two nice wins on back-to-back days, Saturday and Sunday. The offense is now number two in the NBA The defense appears to be getting better. You know what was also impressive last night is the rookie, Andre Jackson Jr. He got a start on Saturday, which you kind of expected with Middleton out. And then with Middleton back, he started again on Sunday, and he played 36 minutes on Sunday. His shooting, which was something he was maligned for in college, he was a part of the UConn National Championship, but he wasn't a scorer. He was a facilitator. He was an elite defender in college. The Bucs were hoping that that wing defense would translate to the NBA because they are in desperate need of wing defenders. And so far, it looks like it has. And his shooting has been surprisingly good. He had 9 points, 6 rebounds, and 3 assists last night. He's not shooting a lot, but he was 4 of 6, 1 of 3 from beyond the arc. In a small sample size, Andre Jackson Jr. is shooting 60% from the field and 45% from the arc. If he is a guy who can prove he can knock down at least corner threes with some regularity and he continues to get better defensively, and he's already a fairly good defender. They've got him matched up against some of the better wings on other teams. That's how much they trust him already. If he keeps his defense at that level and he shows he can hit those corner threes at a regular rate, he is a guy that might profile as a taller version of P.J. Tucker, who maybe could be available. Would you bring P.J. back? He hasn't played a minute in the last few weeks in L.A. Feels like he's going to get bought out of his contract at some point. Would Would you welcome in a P.J. reunion or has that ship sailed? I am impressed, though, with what we've seen from Andre Jackson Jr. so far. Clearly, Adrian Griffin is as well. He is getting more and more minutes every night. He had 36 last night, played 26 in that win against the Pistons on Saturday. Giannis also broke another record and they saved the game ball this time. They were all over that at the end of Sunday's game. He becomes the franchise's all-time leading rebounder, passing once again Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Him and Chris had a funny exchange in the locker room afterwards. One of the reporters was talking to Giannis about all these records he holds now for the Bucs. He's number one in scoring and number one in rebounding and number one in this and that. And Middleton kind of chirped him from the corner and said, well, one thing you'll never have is all-time three-pointers, Giannis. Does Chris have that? He must. And Giannis said, if you give me 20 years, (laughs) give me 20 more years, and I'll have all-time threes made as well. In Bucks franchise history. Another Kareem record goes by the wayside and we just continue to watch Giannis play every night and thank the good Lord above the sports gods that he is ours and he's loyal and committed to the market and breaking these records and he's personable. Did you see too if you're a Sheboygan listener to this podcast, he was at a herd game on Friday, the Wisconsin herd up in Oshkosh. His other brother, Alex Antetokounmpo, plays on that team so if they're home, if the Bucks are in the middle of a home stretch, which they are now, and the herd plays, sometimes Giannis will pop up at that arena in Oshkosh and watch his little brother play. That happened on Friday, and in that game, Plymouth locally in Sheboygan County, the 6th grade Plymouth basketball team, they were playing at halftime of that game, which you'll see in G League games where local teams, local middle school teams or high school teams, play for 10 minutes at halftime to entertain the crowd and to get the experience of playing on a court like that Well, they played at halftime on Friday, and then they got to meet Giannis. Giannis dapped him up, and they all got high fives. And the pictures we put on the B93 Facebook page, the smiles were a mile wide. They'll never forget that moment for the rest of their lives. Giannis continues to just do Giannis things and be the best person on the planet. I don't know, as somebody who is a card-carrying member of the small hands club, medium-sized hands club, I don't know if I had the opportunity... To high-five Giannis or to shake his hand. You ever shake a hand with an infant and you use your index finger and your thumb and you shake the infant's hand? That might be what Giannis would have done to me. I don't know that I would have recovered. Even As cool as it would be to meet Giannis and as neat as it would be to shake his hand or give him a high-five or a knuckles or whatever... I don't know if I shook Giannis's hand that emotionally I would ever recover from that. I would just – seeing his hand totally envelop my hand and my hand disappearing – my confidence in my hands is already pretty low. I don't know that I would ever recover emotionally from that. That would be a weird moment for me of joy and then utter despair as I pulled my hand away from his. That was a neat moment, too, over the weekend for a lot of our Sheboygan area listeners. Bucks are 19-7 and with that win. They are 12-1, and I think, at home. A game and a half behind Boston for the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, and things appear to be trending in the right direction. Now we see Victor Wembignana. For the first time at five serve on Tuesday, the Spurs, despite that draft pick, are sitting at 4-21. and Not a whole lot better than the Pacers, but I would say Spurs fans feel a lot better about where they're at than Pistons fans do. It is an abysmal record, though, for San Antonio. They are at Fi serve with the 7'6 Wembenyana on Tuesday at 7 o'clock. And then there's a rematch with the Magic, who right now are the third or fourth best team in the East and a team that beat the Bucs soundly earlier in the year in Orlando. Rematch at Fi serve Forum on Thursday. And then the Bucks finally hit the road after a seven-game homestand. They are in New York Saturday morning and, of course, in New York on Christmas Day for the first game of that slate of games on ESPN, 11 a.m. on Christmas Day. We'll talk more about that on Friday. That'll do it for us here. We will – I don't know if we're doing Thursday or Friday. Thursday's our last day of work here at B93 in our building. I'm doing nothing on Friday. We could just do a kitchen table podcast on Friday. I think that's the likely outcome of where we're going to be. Plus, I want to give it the full week and see if any injury news or anything like that comes up with the Packers. We'll likely do a Friday morning kitchen table day off podcast. Have a good work week. We'll chat with you then. Are we going to cry in our beer? No! That's right. We're from Wisconsin. We're going to drink our beer, win, lose, or draw, right? (laughs)